Welcome to this episode in the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I am Peter Djokovic, the Senior Naval Historical Officer at the Sea Power Centre Australia. This is the first of two episodes which focus on the Navy's important role in protecting merchant shipping. This episode will discuss the little appreciated Australian contribution to the longest and one of World War II's most decisive campaigns, the Battle of the Atlantic. To tell this story, I'm joined by three people who are all joining us remotely. Uh, firstly, Wing Commander Kevin Baff, who first served in the Royal Australian Air Force in maritime patrol aircraft. In 1977-80, Kevin served on exchange with the Canadian Armed Forces Maritime Patrol Squadron, VP-415 Squadron, based at Summerside, Prince Edward Island, flying piston-engined CP-107 Argus Maritime Patrol aircraft. During that time, the Argus regularly tracked Soviet nuclear submarines in the Atlantic. Later, he joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force and finally retired as a Lieutenant Colonel in the New Zealand Army Territorial Forces after seeing the light and transferring to the infantry. Relevant to this episode, Kevin has written Maritime is Number 10, a history of Number 10 Squadron RAAF, the Sunderland era, 1939-1945. He joins us from his farm on the South Island of New Zealand. This is Jan Roberts-Billet, a noted historian who will publish this year a history of the Dominion Yachtsman Scheme, which we will hear of in this podcast. And finally, Dr Tom Lewis, who is another former naval officer and Iraq and East Timor veteran. He was director of the Darwin Military Museum from 2009 to 2014. Tom is a prolific writer with over 20 books on military and naval history to his name, some of which have touched on the Battle of the Atlantic. Last year he wrote a biography of Teddy Sheehan, VC, which won the Commodore Sam Bateman Book Prize. Thank you for joining me. So first off, to set the scene, Kevin Baff. Uh, can you give us a sense of the scale and strategic significance of the Battle of the Atlantic? Uh, certainly. Um, the World War II Battle of the Atlantic has been referred to as the longest, largest and most complex naval campaign in history, lasting from September 1939 to the defeat of Germany in May 1945 in a theatre covering about 20 million square miles of ocean. The battle had three objectives. One, to blockade the Axis powers in Europe. Two, to maintain the security of Allied Sea Lines of Communication, or SLOC. And three, to maintain the freedom to project maritime power. Forces involved uh, were those from the United Kingdom, United States of America, and many British Commonwealth countries, including Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Opposing Axis forces were Germany and Italy. As a small island nation, the United Kingdom was highly dependent on overseas commerce, particularly imported goods. Britain required more than a million tonnes of imported material per week in order to survive and fight. In essence, the Battle of the Atlantic was a sea lines of communication tonnage war. The Allied struggle to supply Europe, or Britain rather, and the Axis attempt to stem the flow of merchant shipping. In broad terms, Germany's aim was to sink more merchant ships than could be constructed and thus bring Britain to its knees. For the Allies, the defeat of the U-boat threat was thus a prerequisite. In the end, the American industrial miracle of large-scale prefabrication ship construction won out and Germany's aim was not achieved. Rather than a strategy of naval blockade announced the day after war was declared, some British naval officials 
including the first Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, sought a more offensive strategy. The Royal Navy thus formed anti-submarine hunting groups based on aircraft carriers to patrol the shipping lanes in the western approaches to the UK and hunt for U-boats. This strategy was deeply flawed. It flew in the face of World War I experience that had shown how unsuccessful it was to hunt submarines all over the ocean. Far better results could be obtained by forcing the U-boats to attack escorted convoys. Early in the war, Admiral Carl Donitz, Commander U-Boat, submitted a memorandum to Grand Admiral Eric Rader, the, Na the Navy's Commander-in-Chief, in which he estimated effective submarine warfare could bring about Britain's defeat. He advocated a system known as the Rudel Tactic, uh, the so-called Wolf Pack, in which U-Boats could spread out in a long line across the projected course of a convoy. Dernitz calculated that 300 of his Type 7 Atlantic U-boats would create enough havoc among Allied shipping that Britain would be knocked out of the war. This was in, in stark contrast to the traditional view of submarine deployment up until then, i.e. mainly solo excursions into the Atlantic and elsewhere. The German occupation of Norway in April 1940, the rapid conquest of the Low Countries and France in May and June, and the Italian entry into the war on the Axis side in June transformed the war at sea in general and the Atlantic campaign in particular in three ways. The first was that Britain lost its biggest military ally, France. The Royal Navy was now stretched even further. Italy's declaration of war meant that Britain also had to reinforce the Mediterranean fleet and establish a new group at Gibraltar to replace the French fleet in the Western Mediterranean. Uh, secondly, the British destroyers had to be diverted from the Atlantic. And thirdly, the U-boats gained direct access to the Atlantic with German bases at Brest, Lorient, La Palie, that were about 450 miles or 720 kilometres closer to the Atlantic than the bases in the North Sea. The early U-boat operations from the French bases were spectacularly successful and the period from June 1940 to February 1941 became known as the Happy Time. The biggest challenge for the U-boats was to find the convoys in the vastness of the ocean. Air reconnaissance support for the U-boats was limited to a handful of very long-range Focke-Wulf uh, Focke uh, Condor aircraft based at Bordeaux, Merinac and Stavanger in Norway. The best support proved to be B-Dinst, codebreakers who had succeeded in deciphering the British naval cipher number three, thus allowing the Germans to estimate where and when convoys could be expected. The disastrous convoy battles of October 1940 forced a change in British tactics. The most important of these was the introduction of permanent escort groups to improve the coordination and effectiveness of personnel involved in the battle. Churchill recognised the gravity of the developing situation and knew that the outcome of Germany's blockade would ultimately be decided on the stormy waters of the Atlantic. In March 1941, he told the First Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Dudley Pound, we have got to lift this business to the highest plane over everything else. I'm going to proclaim the Battle of the Atlantic. On the 6th of March, he issued a key directive, in part, 
The next four months should enable us to defeat the attempt to strangle our food supplies and our connection with the United States. For this purpose, we must take the offensive against the U-boat and the Fock Wolf. Greater cooperation with supporting aircraft was also achieved the following month, in April 1941, when the British Admiralty assumed operational control of RAF Coastal Command aircraft. Dernitz then moved his wolf packs further west to catch the convoys in the Atlantic Gap, also known as the Black Pit. At a tactical level during this same period, the impact of Allied technological advances began to be felt in the battle during the spring of 1941. And it was during this period that one of the biggest victories in the battle occurred when an intact naval Enigma machine, complete with spare wheels, code books, daily rotor settings, diary and patrol signals, was retrieved from the damaged U-boat U-110 by a boarding party from HMS Bulldog. It proved to be one of the most important intelligence breakthroughs of the whole war. In June 1941, the British were able to provide convoy escort for the full length of the North Atlantic crossing. At the same time, the US finally realised the Atlantic had become dangerous for unescorted American as well as British ships. Aircraft ranges were constantly improving, but the Atlantic was far too large to be covered completely by land-based types. A stopgap measure was instituted by fitting ramps to the front of some of the cargo ships known as catapult aircraft merchantmen or CAM ships, equipped with a lone expendable hurricane fighter aircraft. Convoys coming mainly from North America and predominantly going to the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union were now protected for the most part by the British and Canadian navies and air forces. From September 1941, US ships and aircraft aided these forces. The second happy time occurred during the first half of 1942 when U-boat operations were conducted off the east coast of the US. However, when the Americans finally began arranging convoys, ship losses to the U-boats quickly dropped and Dernitz quickly realised his U-boats were better used elsewhere. On the 19th of July 1942, Dernitz ordered the last boats to withdraw from the US Atlantic coast, and by the end of the month, he had shifted his attention back to the North Atlantic, where Allied aircraft could still not provide totally effective cover. The situation changed constantly, with one side or the other gaining advantage as participating countries surrendered, joined, and even changed sides in the war. And as new weapons, tactics, countermeasures, and equipment were developed by both sides, tit for tat. The Allies, however, gradually gained the upper hand. During 1943, RAF Coastal Command developed tactics and technology to make the Bay of Biscay the main route for the French France-based U-boats very dangerous for their transits. The British had developed an effective centimetric sea-scanning radar small enough to be carried on patrol aircraft, such as Number 10 Squadron Sunderland's, that were armed with airborne modified naval depth charges. The improved radar provided a higher probability of U-boat detection. For the Germans, however, the METOX ESM device, electronic support measures, ESM, also known as the Biscay Krutz or Biscay Cross fitted to their U-boats, could not detect these new radar transmissions. In March 1943, the supply situation in Britain was such 
that there was talk of being unable to continue the war. The situation was said to be so bad that the British considered abandoning convoys entirely. The next two months, however, saw a complete reversal of fortunes. The Allies made potent additions to their aerial covering forces. There was now a second, very long-range B-24 Liberator Squadron able to reach the mid-Atlantic area. Moreover, both squadrons now carried the new homing torpedo known as the Mark 24 mine. They and the escort carriers now operating in the mid-Atlantic area in the gap were sufficient to give the U-boat crews a difficult time. During May 1943, 43 U-boats were destroyed, 34 in the Atlantic, which was about 25% of the German U-boat arms' total operational strength. On the 24th of May, Dernitz called a halt to the one-sided battle in the mid-Atlantic and moved some of his U-boats to a new position off the Azores, where the Allied forces were thought to be less strong. The remaining U-boats were recalled to France. The climax of the campaign occurred during the period March to May 1943, with the latter, i.e. May 1943, being assessed as the decisive month for the Allies. There was no signal, uh, single reason for the Allies' success during this climatic period of 1943. What had changed was the sudden convergence of technologies combined with an increase in Allied resources. At the end of May 1943, the RAF Chief of Air Staff congratulated all those in the RAF Coastal Command squadrons, including their ground crews, and basically said, I know you will press it home, uh, this remarkable advantage that they'd now gained over the U-boats. I know you will press it home with ever-increasing vigour and determination until, in conjunction with the Royal Navy, you have finally broken the enemy's morale. Between June 1943 and May 1945, Germany made several attempts to upgrade its U-boat force, uh, awaiting the next generation of U-boats, the Walter hydrogen peroxide fueled boat and the electroboat types. Among the upgrades were improved anti-aircraft de defences, radar detectors, better torpedoes, decoys and snorkels. Despite this work, the Germans had lost the technological race. Their actions were ultimately restricted to lone wolf attacks in the shallow British coastal waters in preparation, and preparation were made to resist the anticipated invasion of France, Operation Neptune. Ultimately, the Germans failed to stop the flow of strategic supplies uh, to Britain. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill later wrote, the only thing that really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. I was even more anxious about this battle than I had been about the glorious air fight called the Battle of Britain. The strategic significance of the Battle of Britain, or of the Battle of the Atlantic, is that it enabled the build-up of material needed for the invasion of Europe, i.e. D-Day, and ultimately the final defeat of Germany. It refers not to a single battle, engagement or action. Instead, it refers to the long, arduous struggle between Allied and Axis forces to control the sea lanes, i.e. the sea lines of communication that crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean to provide Great Britain with the lifeline without which it would likely have been starved or strangled into submission. Uh, Tom Lewis, uh, what were the strands uh, to Australia's contribution to the Battle of the Atlantic? 
I think there are four major strands to our contribution, though I hesitate to say just four because uh, occasionally you start looking into this area, you find uh, there's a very obscure Australian doing something magnificent on the other side of the world, and uh, he's part of something very, very different. I may, may touch on a couple of those later. But I think to encapsulate those four, you have the rather strangely named Dominion Yachtsman Scheme, and a lot of that was um, swept up um, mine warfare operations, very, very brave people who diffuse mines. I know Jan will touch on that later, and, and George Cross's one, um, a magnificent effort, I think. Uh, you then found, as a second um, strand, you found Australians commanding uh, HMAS ships over there, uh, so I think a lot of us uh, think we fought over here most of the time. What was an HMAS ship with Aussies on board um, doing over in those very sometimes cold areas of uh, the Northern Hemisphere? Uh, the third um, area was uh, Australians embedded, to use a modern term, um, in British ships in the main. Uh, so uh, you find unusual people such as Vat Smith, who we often call the father of the fleet air arm after the war. Uh, he was shot down twice um, flying um, off uh, British ships. You then find other uh, Australians serving in and on occasion commanding um, British destroyers. Uh, Deshano uh, was one of our uh, naval heroes, I'd, I'd say, in World War II. He commanded two um, British ships. Um, and uh, occasionally, not so glamorous, you found people commanding things, um, a fishing trawler, uh, which um, sunk a U-boat under an Australian. To finish off with the, the fourth strand, um, you do find Australians working with the RAF, and sometimes they're RAAF people, and sometimes they're working um, in the RAF. Occasionally, you find Australians who became RAF members. We'll have a look at some of those strands uh, now. The uh uh, as Tom said, the unusually named Dominion Yachtsman Scheme, I think, is one of the uh, more underappreciated aspects of Australian naval history. Uh, Jan Roberts Billet, it's sort of your area of speci speciality. What was the Dominion Yachtsman Scheme and how did its men contribute to the Battle of the Atlantic? In April, uh, there was a request to the, of 1940s, 27th of April, the Australian Commonwealth Government from the Admiralty, and it was signed by Anthony Eden for uh, arrangements to appoint a limited number of young Australians into direct commissions into the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve and also to take, accept a number of volunteers as ordinary seamen who would then be uh, trained, of course, for a period of service. Now, the advertisements that was gazetted by the uh, Commonwealth Government and the RAN in June 1940 and advertisements in the newspapers were in July 1940 throughout Australia. Uh, and the applications were for gentlemen yachtsmen. The gentlemen's important. Uh, there were A-class men who were between 30 and 40 who were meant to uh, have some level of, for instance, uh, the uh, Yacht Masters Coastal Certificate. The idea being that the yacht clubs could provide a number of people that could be trained up very quickly. Of course, I don't think they realised that Australia during the Depression, uh, there weren't a lot of yachtsmen scheme. Uh, Hugh Syme, who was one of the uh, mine, you know, rendering mine safe men that you mentioned, he actually had half shares in a, rock, a yacht called West Wind in, at Royal Melbourne. Uh, but 
you know, he was one of the few. However, a number of them had sailed, but not a lot. Um, a lot of those men that were over 30, they were obviously appointed to direct commissions as temporary probationary sub-lieutenants. And then on, and that was all actually the mine disposal men. And they were put into special duty. Shusan was given the, um, the job of organising them and recruiting them. And there were actually 10 altogether of 500-odd yachtsmen scheme men. So that's not a huge percentage. However, the B-class group, they were between 20 and 30, and they were recruited so they could be trained as officers once they got to England. Uh, in September 1940, most of them sailed in the Stratonava, the Royal Mail Ship Stratonava, over to, in to the UK, and there are only 14 A-class and 58 ordinary seamen. So it gives you an idea of the percentage. There weren't a lot of A-class men who were actually recruited. And when they arrived in at Liverpool, the young men were then put onto trains and they went to HMS Collingwood, where they were CW, Commission Warrant Papers. They did three months training and they were sent for their sea time for another three months. And these were the guys, most of all of the men in some way served because of their sea time in the Battle of the Atlantic. A number of the yachties, that's including Clive Taylor, Don Redden, um, who else have I got? Max Germain, Frank, in various times, went to uh, HMS Ripley, which had been taken over from the US Navy for escort duties. And she'd been built in the First World War for 82 crew, but she carried 132 in the Battle of the North Atlantic. And they had very primitive conditions. Do you want me to read you out from the interest of people um, the, uh, the comments that he passed? Don Redden, I used to doss down wherever I could and there was one bloke, he never knew it, but I used to sleep in his bunk. The loo was a thing like a horse trough with seawater being pumped in at one end and out the other with all the product. There were eight seats that sat down over this, and if anybody caught a disease on shore, one of those seats had to be roped off with a big notice, and that was his while we had to use the other seven. Of course, the big joke was this bloke sitting on seat number one would often quite often finish reading the newspaper, so we would put a match to it and slot it down while it was still burning. And if you wanted a bath, there was no shower on board, so and this, of course, affected the Australians quite considerably. This, of course, we never did in sea, only in harbour. You got a bucket of water, put a steam pipe through it, so you stood there stark naked, soaked yourself all over and got someone to tip it over to you. Now, Don Redden suffered from severe seasickness and the doctor asked if he'd take past in experiments and they've tried in various concoctions. Eventually, he was sent uh, on to do a course at HMS Osprey in anti-submarine detection and was eventually sent back to Australia to train people at um, Rushcutter at the anti-submarine school. Uh, the... After that, when they'd done um, people like Ted Gred, Max Germain, Ellison Hawker, they were in Banff as well, which was on Gambia and the west coast of Africa. People forget that, of course, the North Atlantic was one thing, but there was also submarine activity, a lot of it in the South Atlantic as well. Once they'd finished their sea time, some were um, delayed because their ships were sunk in the mid, etc., etc., um, during the evacuation from Greece. Um, the Australian troops, uh, they went to HMS King Alfred for commissioning. And King Alfred was set at, it was at Brighton. Uh, there were 48,000 Wavy Navy, as they called them, the uh, Royal um, Naval Volunteer Reserve, uh, that 
pass through. They trained 40,000 officers through the course of the war. So the 500 approximately yachties, as they were called by their contemporaries, were accounted for only 1% of the volunteer personnel. And their three-month cramming course was aimed to equip a potential officers to serve as treben- treben- temporary probationary sub-lieutenants. Thank you, Jane. And just for our, our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, you referred to them as, as wavy navy a little, a little bit earlier. Um, oh, yes. Can you tell us uh, what, what that term actually refers to? Yes, because they wore wavy gold lace on their sleeves of their naval uniforms to show their rank. And, of course, the permanent navy wore straight, as the Royal Australian Navy does. Kevin, can you give us a, a little bit of uh, information about the Royal Australian Air Force's involvement in the Atlantic campaign? Uh, sure. Um, there were many Australians, um, uh, both in the RAF and also the RAAF, um, who uh, served during that period of the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, I'll talk about the RAF Coastal Command Squadrons, including RAAF uh, Squadrons Numbers 10, 455 and 461. Uh, Number 10 Squadron, uh, as it turned out, was the only Royal Australian Air Force Squadron to see continuous active service throughout World War II. And its major tasks during the war were escorting convoys, conducting anti-submarine patrols and air-sea rescue tasks. It conducted operations mainly from RAF stations Mountbatten and Pembroke Dock in southern England, uh, the unit also flew missions further afield in Oban in Scotland and uh, also overseas to Gibraltar, uh, transit flights to and from or transport flights to and from um, Alexandria uh, in Egypt. Um, Number 10 Squadron was credited with the destruction of five U-boats and one Italian uh, submarine during the uh, war or during the Battle of the uh, Atlantic. Uh, it also set a, an RAF Coastal Command record in February 1944 for the most patrol hours flown in a single month, 1,143 hours. Uh, some of the personalities from 10 Squadron, Wing Commander Ron Gillies, uh, who became the CO in December 1943, at the time was the youngest CO in RAF Coastal Command. Uh, another notable was... Um, Air Commodore, then Group Captain Jim Alexander, who was a CO of Number 10 Squadron and then promoted and became the Officer Commanding RAF Mountbatten. Uh, He was deeply involved in the development of the Mark V Sunderland, which people can read about uh, elsewhere. Number 461 Squadron, it was called the Anzac uh, Squadron because... uh, It was formed on Anzac Day 1942. It was an Article 15 uh, Empire Air Training Scheme uh, squadron. It formed at Mountbatten and used many personnel who had previously served with Number 10 Squadron. It moved to Hamworthy near Poole three months later and then back to Pembroke Dock where it operated until it was disbanded at the end of the war. Um, It was mainly involved in conducting daylight Uh, anti-submarine patrols over the Bay of Biscay. And uh, these were the patrols that exposed their aircraft to frequent attacks by German fighters um, and many accounts, uh, including one um, flown by Dudley Marrow's DSO, DFC, when he was attacked by upwards of eight 
I believe, uh, JU-88 aircraft operating in that area at the time. Uh, following the liberation of France, um, the number of U-boats declined in the Atlantic and 461 made few contacts with the enemy. Um, they destroyed a total of six U-boats. 455 Squadron uh, formed in early 1941, mainly from Australian personnel, uh, initially assigned to Number 5 Group RAF Bomber Command, and it conducted bomber operations over Europe in Hanley Page Hamptons uh, with vari from various bases in the United Kingdom. In February 1942, it took part in an unsuccessful attack on the German battleship ships Scharnhorst and Neisenau before being re-rolled as a torpedo uh, bomber squadron and transferred to RAF Coastal Command in April 1942. Um, it actually operated with both fighters from uh, Number 489 Royal New Zealand Air Force uh, Squadron, and they were involved with... Uh, uh, strike that um, became known as a, the Anzac Wing um, and conducted operations to keep German vessels clear of the English Channel during the build-up to the D-Day landings. After D-Day, the Anzac Wing returned to Scotland where it joined other Bowfighter squadrons and formed an even larger strike wing that wrought havoc on, British, on German shipping, mainly along the Norwegian and Dutch uh, coasts. Um, during its time with Coastal Command, the squadron was credited with the destruction of 10 merchant ships, one U-boat, four minesweepers and three escort vessels. Um, that's about it from the uh, Royal Australian Air Force in respect of uh, operational squadrons. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Tom, if we could move on, could you uh, tell us a little bit about the RAN ships that took part in the campaign? Sure. Uh, RAN ships that took uh part in the Battle of the Atlantic weren't that plentiful, um, but uh, what they did was uh, punch a little bit above their weight, I think. Um, conveniently, some of them are known by the uh, letter N. Uh, so you actually had um, the Napier, Nestor, Nepal, Nizam and Norman um, all built in uh, the Royal Navy yards, um, but then transferred to the Royal Australian Navy. Uh, so, um, for example, you had uh, Nestor, which was part of the force that hunted and sank the German ship um, Bismarck, although she wasn't actually part of it on the day. Um, Nestor sunk a, um, a German submarine uh, on the surface uh, uh, with her main armament and um, you know, attacked with that and then um, depth charged her and she was later officially credited with the destruction of U-127. There were, as you say, quite a few RAN officers who were not part of the yachtsman scheme but who did serve uh, in Royal Navy ships. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about their service? Probably not many people have heard of Lieutenant Commander Arthur Calloway, um, but he was actually in command of basically a large fishing trawler. And when I think people out there in the public think fishing trawler, they think, well, how can that be a warship? Um, it's retrofitted um, to be an anti-submarine warship. Uh, and um, she actually did a very good job hunting down a um, German submarine, the U-111. And uh, this was a ship known as HMS Lady Shirley. That was the name of the, the trawler. Uh, several members of the Lady Shirley were injured and one killed in the battle. Um, of the U-boat crew of, eight, of 52, eight were killed, 44 survived. And it was the first time that prisoners of war were captured from a U-boat operating in the South Atlantic. I was just wondering if... Uh perhaps each of you would like to give 
an account from each of the, the aspects of the campaign that we've discussed and, and perhaps expand upon that a little bit further. Jen, you've, you've already spoken about a few people, but was there, was there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to relate to us? Um, yes, I would like to say something about the actually the South Atlantic Sub-Lieutenant Ellison Hawker, whose first posting once he was commissioned was to HMS Corinthian, which was an old fruit boat previously employed for shipping oranges from Haifa. And he actually, it was a coal burner, but it was fitted with ASDIC and certainly uh, radar for escorting. And they were originally, st- they were stationed at Freetown and initially were guarding the cable-laying ship, the John W. McKay, near the Cape Verde Islands, however, against U-boat attack. But Freetown was one of the major collecting positions. And I think if you're talking about the Battle of the Atlantic, apart from the convoys and obviously protecting Britain's need, there were a couple of big ships. They were passenger ships which sailed unescorted and the Duchess of Athol was torpedoed um, shortly out from, um, I think, the from they took them down near, near um, uh, the Azores. And then, of course, later on, the Ceramic was. The Empress of Canada was another ship which Corinthians sailed to rescue. And she'd been port- torpedoed at night by an Italian submarine, the Leonardo da Vinci. And there were 2,000 people on board. The unescorted Canadian ship and Corinthian was the nearest ship available and she was three days sailing away. And the passengers were all cut returning after the fall of Singapore and, of course, back from families were nurses, wives, expectant mothers, children, army officers, etc. And they were going from Singapore, India and the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and they'd been nearly four days at sea when they were um, in the tropics surrounded by schools of, of course, hammerhead sharks and, um, oh, what are those long skinny fish, barracuda? And he was uh, absolutely, I think he carried it. I'd interviewed him when he was 90. He carried that for the rest of his life. He said the oil ship was 35 miles wide and the whole of it was full of people. Um, and a shark, they were, you know, you can read about it, I think, in, in my book. Even reading about it, I find it fairly traumatic talking about. His next posting was to HMS Biter, which was one of the first two um, air-carrying um, wild cats and string bags. What do they call them? They were swordfish and, and wildcats. And string bags was the n- nicknames for the swordfish. And he was gunnery offer in, in the Biter. Thanks, Jen. As I said before, it's an underappreciated aspect, I think, of Australian naval history. So I'm looking forward to reading your book uh, when it comes <laughs> out. Kevin, is there anything you'd like to uh, to talk about? Yeah, I was um, particularly interested in the um, RAF operational research aspects, uh, Coastal Command, and the involvement of uh, 10 Squadron, um, particularly in respect of the offensive in the Bay of Biscay. And it was sort of reminiscent of some of the sorties that I actually flew in Neptunes and Orions against uh, RAN O-boats back in the 80s. Um the scientists um, at RAF Operational Research had calculated with precision that a U-boat would have to surface for five hours to maintain an 80% battery charge. Uh, while it was thus vulnerable to air attacks, statistics, well, analysis showed that it would be possible, given, given enough aircraft, for the U-boat crossing the bay to be forced to dive every 30 minutes. 
and Dern it's boldly accepted the challenge and he modified the um, the boats and he ordered his U-boat commanders to submerge by night and uh, transit on the surface by day, ready to repel enemy aircraft with their newly installed flak batteries. Um, unfortunately for the Germans, the new tactics played uh, straight into the hands of RAF Coastal Command. The U-boat commanders found themselves at a serious disadvantage as Coastal Command pilots became very proficient in sweeping in fine on the U-boat's bow, knowing that the flak battery was installed after the uh, conning tower. Um, after the initial encounters, um, Dernitz tried sending out special flak uh, U-boats in packs to stay on the surface and fight back, and 10 Squadron actually lost um, uh, Bob Fry during one of these, uh, these attacks in, in the bay. So new tactics were developed, and 10 Squadron actually tried them uh, during June 1943. Um, so I extracted this uh, entry, which I found fascinating, 16th of June 1943 in the 10 Squadron Operational Record Book. Um, aircraft JM684, a Sunderland, airborne at Mountbatten at 0340 hours on an anti-submarine patrol in the Bay of Biscay. Uh, when the aircraft reached a particular position, it was joined by a two other Sunderlands of 10 Squadron, and the three aircraft then carried out an uneventful formation patrol before recovering to Mountbatten some 10 hours later. Um, the entry goes on, it says, formation flying as adopted on this day is in answer to changed tactics on the part of the German U-boats, which are now hunting in packs with relatively heavy anti-aircraft armament which makes it almost impossible for aircraft to carry out successful attacks with depth charges. Proposed tactics, and this is what I found fascinating, are for the formation leader dispatches the wing aircraft to draw fire and kill the U-boat gunners, while the leader then follows in carrying out a depth charge attack. Um, my only query there is uh, the boat's still on the surface, so the um, what, what's going to be uh, any advantage of a depth charge attack, I'm not sure. So three aircraft of 10 Squadron were airborne the following day. Um, they were called musketry formation anti-submarine patrols. Um, a few more were flown, but then on the 27th of June, just a fortnight after the uh, initial formation flight, uh, says there have been scarcely any sightings in the Bay of Biscay during recent weeks and the latest indications are that the pack hunting by U-boats has not been entirely successful and what few submarines have been sighted have been alone. Single patrols have therefore been resumed. Recent information indicates that the morale of the U-boat crews is very low. Um, so the, the RAF uh, Coastal Command Bay Offensive was quite successful and number 10 squadron um, and 461 squadron played uh, quite a role in that uh, Bay of Biscay offensive. Thanks, Kevin. And uh, Tom, is there anything you'd like to, to add? A quick look at uh, Vat Smith's career. Um, he was uh, posted to HMS Ark Royal and uh, ship was soon to sea in the South Atlantic participating in the search for the Graf Spee. Uh, but after that, um, they moved back to the north and uh, they then started looking for the battle cruiser Scharnhorst. 
821 Squadron, this is Fat Smith, uh, was ordered to the attack. Six long-range swordfish were deployed under his command and after a flight across the North Sea found their target. They carried out torpedo attacks, but no hits were recorded. No two of the aircraft were lost and the crews died. Smith later recorded as a frightening experience. You're in some respects a sitting duck when moving into torpedo aiming range and unable to change course because you're also in the ship's gun range. But one of his personal reports at the time noted he has plenty of fighting spirit, and this was confirmed a while later when, along with the senior pilot, he was awarded dimension in despatches for bravery when attacking German battlecruiser Scharnhorst. Thanks for that, Tom. So to wrap up, can I just ask uh, the panel for your final thoughts on Australia's contribution to the Battle of Atlantic? Tom, if I could start with you. So I think my final contribution to what thinking of the Battle of the Atlantic would be very, very brief. Um, over there and underappreciated. Uh, it's a long way from Australia, and I think a lot of Australians don't realise we were there. We were uh, underappreciated, but hopefully with uh, new books and uh, podcasts such as this, people will realise uh, we're doing a great job. Thanks, Tom. And uh, Jan, if we could move on to you. Thank you. Actually, I would um, endorse that, and that's what my book's about, because these men have never been really recognised, and they didn't weren't a particular. Uh, they're, they're the biggest cohort that went the Yachtsman scheme men. Now there were about ten of them who lost their lives returning to Australia, and that because they were sailing in passenger ships, and I think the they were coming back to Australia to obviously help with the war effort here, but. The passenger ships were, of course, um, sunk by U-boats. And just very briefly, was HM, well, Hood wasn't the same, but there were four, there were meant to be eight yachtsman ski men on board Hood when the Hood was sunk in the Western Approaches. Uh, but only four of them were on the, in it, so there were only four, well, but still lost their lives there. Um, the SS Ceramic, which was torpedoed near, near the Azores, and there were... Um, Ray Cutts, Basil O'Donoghue and um, Richard Utting, who'd all been serving in uh, the Royal Navy and were being sent back to Australia to, you know, obviously contribute in certain ways for the Australian um, defence. And the SS Melbourne Star, which was sunk in the Caribbean, and that was, torp again, torpedoed by a U-boat. And there was a um, Lieutenant Peter Wishaw, Charles Secker, and a sub-Lieutenant Keith Jackson. He was actually ill and was being repatriated. He had uh, tuberculosis. But there were a lot of, quite a lot of casualties proportionally. There were 35 um, yachtsman scheme men lost their lives, but actually about 10 of them lost them coming back to Australia. Very good. Thanks, Jan. Thank you. And uh, Kevin, your final thoughts? I think within the uh, Royal Australian Air Force fraternity, uh, they still remained up until a few years ago, very strong, um, particularly Sunderland Squadrons Association uh, in respect of the uh, Battle of the Atlantic. And uh, I recall back in the mid 80s, um, I was in correspondence with a uh, one of the second watch officers of a U-boat sunk by 10 Squadron, Bill Tilly from uh, Melbourne and Kurt, uh, actually visited Edinburgh, and uh, I've got a photograph of him sitting in the uh, cockpit of uh, one of our P3s. Um, a, a grand old fellow, he's uh, now dead, but um, but that that strong association, I believe, still remains. Um, 
Of the 783 U-boats thereabouts that were sunk uh, in the Battle of the Atlantic, uh, 10 Squadron 461 and 455 accounted for just 12 of them, plus one Italian submarine. And I worked that out at about 1.7% of the uh, total. Um, that is uh, small, but however, that being said, I think it's the synergy of the contributions that proved decisive uh, in the end. And uh, I firmly believe that uh, all those RAAF um, aircrew, ground crew, uh, were entitled to hold their head high and stand proud. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Kevin Baff, Tom Lewis and Jan Roberts-Billet. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the University's Creative Media Unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us and if you like this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, please let other people know. Uh, goodbye for now.